Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Sienna Films' Jennifer Kawaja about the company's rapidly expanding drama slate. NOAA Media Group's John McKenna and Gabrielle Clark talk about the growing global demand for sports documentaries. And Turn TV's Harry Bell reflects on Dolly the Sheep and streaming. Over the past five years, Siena Films has ramped up its scripted output, starting with the detective drama Cardinal, which aired on Bell Media's CTV for four seasons, and the international co-production Ransom. More recently, the firm has produced several shows for Canadian public broadcaster CBC, including the indigenous drama Trickster, as well as the upcoming drama series The Porter for CBC and Bet Plus in the US. In October, Siena's latest project, Sort Of, a half-hour sitcom following a non-binary Pakistani-Canadian millennial, premiered on CBC. In the US, it debuted on HBO Max this month. President of scripted content Jennifer Kawaja spoke to Jordan Pinto about the creation and launch of Sort Of, how Siena's set up to capitalise on new opportunities in the scripted space and other shows it has in the works. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm actually pretty good. Very busy. We're editing um, in post-production on a show called The Porter, um, which we just finished shooting in Manitoba. It's a CBC BET Plus show um, that we're all very excited about. So um, that's always fun to be in the edit room where there are limitations. It's good. Yes. And um, of of course, we're also not many weeks removed from the launch of Sort Of, um, which is a a co-commission between Canadian public broadcasters CBC and HBO Max in the US. Um, that project has received a lot of praise, um, you know, in recent weeks for its portrayal of a gender-fluid Pakistani-Canadian millennial who straddles various identities. Um, I, I want to start with that show. Um, maybe if you could talk about how Sienna um, became involved with that project originally. We had been working with Fab, who we thought was very talented and liked his sensibilities. We shared a lot of tastes. And uh, we'd been working with him on another show and developed a relationship. And he called me one day and said, I've been working with this person in a theater play and they really connect they identify as non-binary i've learned so much about it i've learned you know we've become friends and i think there's a show about them there's some there's a show about them okay i don't know what it is but we've been talking and i said okay that my gut says go with it and keep talking and and see where you land so they talked some more they sent us some pages and i read the pages and the pages were not quite the show that we have but i said listen i think this kind of comedy and this kind of show because I had a hunch of what they were reaching for I think we should make a sizzle I don't think we should just write a script how do you feel about that so Fab went back to Bilal talked to Bilal they agreed that they would be most interested in doing that and they were willing so we set about optioning the concept which was again at the time not quite sort of but we knew that it was about around Bilal and around Bilal's gender fluid identity and that process morphed into Fab also putting himself into the story. Anyways, we we um, we wrote a sizzle. We shot it as cheaply as we could, and then started to shop it. And very quickly, everyone that saw it just sort of fell in love with the sizzle. And so we had some platform 
was interested, CBC was interested, and we really felt like Making the Sizzle really helped us understand what the show was, the DNA of the show, and we wanted to just go to production and sort of go into the room with writers and actually just work on it. And uh, there's such a different sort of thing that happens, energy that happens when you're developing knowing that you're going to production, you know? So CBC was on board. They were wonderful. They uh, came on board and right away they said yes after some quick thinking. You know, it took several weeks and they jumped in with us, you know, sort of both feet wholeheartedly and they got it right away as well. I think we all felt we went in for a meeting and just felt like they really got the DNA of the show and because they were willing to sort of take a chance with us and Bilal and Fab really liked the meeting that we had with Sally Caddo and with uh, Trish Williams who were the ones who um, got the show excitedly. So we set off onto a, in, in a room and I began looking for what I felt would be the rest of the money needed to do the show because it wasn't a you know sort of in-studio kind of single location franchise type of show so we knew that it would cost and and uh, a bit of money um, and so we began looking in the U.S. for pre-sale or, or as you say a co-commission and ended up again feeling that HBO Mac got the DNA of the show the most were, were the most excited about it and um, the most enthusiastic so we continued development with HBO Max with a, put it, putting a deal in place both broadcasters of course if they didn't like the scripts they didn't have to move forward into production but we were commissioned for eight scripts and I guess that was it we were on our way and Fab and Bilal had figured out enough of the show before the room like the structure of the show the structure of the sort of main tent poles of the story that the room went really well and we had great writers in the room and some of whom we had worked with before so what happened though which was really difficult was that we were writing and doing pre-production when the pandemic was at a low so the pandemic the cases in Toronto had hit like an all-time low in the you know in the last like six months or whatever it was since the pandemic started so we set all our locations and we picked everything and then literally the week we were going to shoot in October the cases started rising massively and so every location that we picked we couldn't do what we wanted to do because the protocols had completely changed so that was a little production challenge Barbuk was all of a sudden way too small for the crew and for actors and so so it was a really kind of fun but challenging experience with the pandemic and the the cases just rising throughout our whole shoot but everyone was so wonderfully committed to the show both the main creative team as well as the crew that we made our way through it uh, I know people are talking about this as a potentially game-changing series I think um, particularly in in the portrayal of, of the lead character and, and, the, and the world that it examines and um, what I know it's still kind of relatively early since the, the show was launched but w- what has the early feedback been like um, that you have received it's been so wonderful the feedback that we've gotten both from the press from journalists um, reporting on the show and the communities that are reflected and represented in the show as well I think that just audiences you know on social media are telling us that they love it and why they love it we've had a great response internationally to the show as well from broadcasters around the world and with uh with with Jonathan um, Ford at Abacus selling I mean I couldn't have asked for a more positive response I think that it's always tricky when you're creating a show that has a new character that hasn't really been seen at the center of the storytelling but that also is exploring ideas of intersectionality and 
and sort of what does that look like? How do we coexist together? Whether it's about being genderqueer, whether it's about people of color and white people, racialized people and white people, genderqueer people and straight people who are living more heteronormative lives. So the show um, sort of tried for kind of a mashup and not separating these worlds. And you never know how people are going to respond to that. It's always, you know, sort of much more tricky, much harder than to just do something that, you know, one thing or the other. But Fab and Bilal were really committed to not doing that. And the show is inspired by Bilal's real experiences. So we wanted to be truthful. And Bilal was also fantastic. They were always sort of very committed to the idea of expressing their version of reality in a, in a way that felt real to them and understood that people might like it or not like it. And so there was always everyone on the show was like searching for whatever truth was in the DNA of the show. So so in that way, it was a really wonderful experience. And I think the response to it has, you know, spoken back to us to say, you know, we love this. It's funny. It's warm. It's real. And it reflects our lives. And and so, so many people have, have said that to us in many, many ways. I might be jumping the gun a bit here, but um, any, any news on a potential or the potential of a second season? <laughs> we are in a room. We are writing script to the second season with the hope that everyone will want to participate in a second season, but there's no official word yet that we have a second season. And of course, we're anxiously waiting to see, you know, sort of how it does. And I think we'll have a good sense by the end of November. So Sienna was previously owned by the Q Media Group and Sienna left that entity in March 2020. And I think all of that is fairly well well covered ground at this point. Um, you were then acquired by Montreal-based Sphere Media in March of 2020 as well. Um, could you talk a bit about since moving under that new ownership, how, how has your company changed, if at all? You know, it's what's been wonderful is that Sphere and Bruno Dubay, who run Sphere, has been so incredibly supportive of both sort and the Porter, and neither project could have happened uh, without him and without Sphere. So I feel Julia Cerny and myself, who were the you know partners in, in Sienna Films, I think we're pretty thrilled with our partnership with Sphere. You know, it's it's changed how we function in the in the big picture way, in the sense that we're part of a larger corporation now. But that has brought so many benefits to us that, to be honest, you know, Sienna is a, a small boutique production house that produces fairly idiosyncratic work who we have never been afraid of new and young voices who don't have lots of experience but we've we've worked with very experienced people as well but our work is very very idiosyncratic very particular and always has been and sphere has embraced that and embraced us and they're fully aware of it before you know buying us so we feel sort of quite lucky and um, I mean we've existed on our own for such a long time even with Q the studio Sienna was still intact. So, of course, there are differences. I don't, you know, our business, we have a Toronto studio, which is discreet from Montreal, and it's now the English scripted studio, which which I'm running. But I think it's been an amazing partnership. And I love the Quebec vibe of the company. And in a way, you know, I really admire them because they have made this incredible Jocelyn Duchesne and Bruno and all the people that work at Sphere have 
created this strong company making really great work in French and survived very well and kind of made a name for themselves even internationally. So I sort of feel like we couldn't have been luckier, really. You were mentioning there the, the Toronto office that you're now running. How do you feel Sienna is set up now to capitalize on some of the opportunities in the uh, in the international marketplace for scripted content? You know, we have been in a deep development mode for about three or four years. We have a lot of projects on the cusp and ready to go out into the marketplace to package and finance. So, you know, we feel pretty excited about the response that our work has gotten over the last five years. We feel pretty excited that the world, not just Canada, has, you know, sort of received our particular project so well and so favorably. And so I feel like hopefully the timing is right for us to get some more idiosyncratic projects made and with wonderful creators. So, I mean, but I think, you know, being with Sphere gives us sort of a more power to um, operate in the international sphere, but at the same time, we're not in, in any way subsumed by another identity. So I hope that we can get interest for our projects, but certainly I think the international sort of buyers, you know, sort of based on, again, the last five years of our work in particular, although we've been, you know, a company that we've, we've existed for a really long time and done the work that we have wanted to do. I think we are at a place where we can deliver really great stories that come from Canada, but that have international play. And I think that's what we've always wanted to do. And we did it with Cardinal. Um, we did it with Trickster, even though we didn't go to another season and sort of and Ransom. And, you know, we and we always have partners and we did it a long time ago, even with Combat Hospital. So, you know, this business is very vol- volatile, as you know, and one has to have uh, a certain amount of humility because you can be up one day and down the next or down one day and up the next and the marketplace is changing all the time and so we've been at it long enough to not have any delusions or illusions but at the same time I feel a huge myself the team feels a huge amount of optimism that these shows that we put a lot of passion into are reaching audiences and connecting with them and all you can do really is make the shows we make shows that we feel really passionate about um not shows that we think can get made. <laughs> and so it's a very, you know, fine line between those two things. And um, I'm not driven by, nor is, nor is the team, driven by let's do this because we think it can get made. That's not what drives our company. And that's not what drives us in any way individually. And Fear has been fully supportive of that and taken financial risks on these projects. Um, one of the newer projects, and I, I believe it was, it was announced for the first time earlier this month in Rome at the MIA or MIA, was the espionage thriller The Recruiter. Um, I think I saw somewhere that it's about 40% financed at this stage, but um, yeah, could, could you tell us a little more about the project and, and where you are uh, in terms of uh, trying to put the, the, the various pieces together? Yeah, it's a big project. It's with the creator that we've worked with um, before that we have a long relationship with, David Vinola, who was the show, one of the showrunners and co-creator of a Ransom. And sort of he brought us this idea after talking with uh, somebody who had approached us, somebody who 
was an intelligent person. And we're it's a project that we're really excited about. It's it's very timely. We think it's prescient. So we just Mia was the first time we've let it out of the company. Um, we thought, oh, why don't we see if if we could use it as a first platform to introduce the show to the world? And it was very exciting to see the response that it got. As you know, the recruiter is uh, inspired by uh, the five eyes, which are a certain number of Western countries that have a coalition of intelligent and spy making and very focused right now on China. And so again, it's tricky subject matter. It's a fine line to walk, but it's the kind of line that we at Sienna like to walk because we feel that, you know, sort of where there's difficult territory, there's interesting story and sometimes very important story for us as, you know, sort of nations who are all trying to live together. So we're attracted to it on so many levels. So we'll see. Right now we're looking for an international partner, preferably in Australia or the UK, because those are two key countries that we have co-production treaties with and that we can partner with in ways to get projects done. But of course, we'll be looking south of the border as well. And we did have a lot of interest at MIA, which was really exciting because um, that genre is definitely populating the marketplace right now. So it's just sort of how to be unique and different and do something that maybe other people don't want to do. And in fact, there was a few responses of people suggesting anxiety about dealing with the geopolitical relationship between China and the West. So hopefully we'll get it made. And I think if we can, it'll be really interesting. But it, it is early days on the project. We just have a script and a pitch. Are, are there any other projects on the development slate at the moment that, I don't know, you, you would either like, like to highlight or that you're kind of making, making progress with? We're in development with a few projects with CBC and one with Bell, all of which we love. We love them and we think they could be great, but I feel like it's probably too early days to talk about them. Um, but we definitely have in development a really solid group of half hours, dramedies, and we have a couple of, I think, along with Recruiter, a couple of other pretty great um, one hours. And uh, we'll be going out into the marketplace sort of starting in December, January, continuing with Recruiter, but with a couple of other things as well. UK indie Noah Media Group is behind a string of acclaimed sports documentaries including Netflix's Bobby Robson, More Than a Manager, Amazon's The Edge and Steve McQueen, The Man and Le Mans. More recently, the firm teamed with the BBC and Virgin Media Ireland on feature doc Finding Jack Charlton and with France's Federation Entertainment on the series Arsene Wenger Invincible for Canal+. Co-founders John McKenna and Gabrielle Clark spoke to Ruth Laws about the growing global demand for sports documentaries and benefits of the direct-to-consumer approach. It would be great if you could just talk me through why you decided to launch you know, a media group. Well, yeah, I mean, I think um, John and I had worked together a long time at, at ITV where we first uh, met. So uh, during that period where we, we covered a lot of live sport, we also started to do more and more longer form content um, from features around uh, all sorts of subjects, really. Football, rugby, boat race, um, boxing. And I think doing that variety of sport for different types of programs, as I say, live, World Cups, European Championships, some major events, and then sometimes more intimate um, events, you get a sense of, I think, the potential for storytelling. And that was something that uh, both of us were really interested in, which led to some documentary making. And I think um, that that shared passion for that subject needed to find its own sort of territory, really, so you could be more in control of what you were doing. John went freelance, and um, we developed a film, Steve McQueen, The Man on the Mall, which became more than a film, really. It became a, a, a 
project that was good enough to get selected into the Cannes Film Festival. It uh, required all sorts of things that happen in the big bad world of filmmaking, like funding and um, distribution. And uh, it was during the course of that that we we got in touch with Barry Smith, who's now No Media Group's chairman, and felt that yeah, we should we should do this in our own way and control a lot of the process in our own way. So that that that, that explains, I think, both the background for filmmaking, the passion for that, but also the idea that you can be in control of your own destiny clearly if you have your own company that you also want to have clear ideals and an ideology around that which is something that Barry John and now Torkel Jones who, who John worked with uh, as co-founders we wanted to establish as well yeah I, I, yeah and as Gabriel said we, we set the company up to tell stories that initially we wanted to direct ourselves and then as we'd grown we brought in Torquil Talk as a director who's, who's incredibly talented so Gabriel and Talk can direct the films and now from that initial four people we're now at around 40 and setting out to identify which we've done over the last five to six years as we've been going really talented young filmmakers film producers um, and bring them into the company and and really ensure that we maintain those standards that, that we set at the start as we grow and that's you know that's that's what we're looking to do we're looking to we're looking to grow we're looking to tell really really good stories we're looking to keep the standard as high as it can possibly be and yeah and, and so based on that fundamental at the start when we set up to tell really good stories and try and get them out there in a way that was as, as good as they possibly could go. And am I correct in thinking you, you sort of largely do sport and then you picked up a show about flaws in the US healthcare system? Are there any sort of areas that you're looking to sort of push into? Yeah, I mean, in terms of what we're producing at the moment, our background, as Gabriel said, is is sport. It's where we both came from, and uh, a lot of the people in the in the business did come from. So yes, I mean that's our that's our strength. I think that's that's where, we're, where our reputation is growing in, in making sport documentaries. But I think documentaries is the key word. We're looking to tell stories that are bigger than sport have bigger themes than sports and it's going very well in that area we want to stay in that area absolutely but we do want to expand beyond that so we are looking at I mean a couple of the films that are, are coming at the moment a mountaineering film which is very much about um, representation and bereavement and, and much much bigger themes than sports and, and we have another film in production about huge US themes it's bigger than sports so our intention is to be is to be making high-end documentaries in sport and wider than sport in the near future yeah, I just think there's, a, there's sometimes a, sports a bit patronised. I think sometimes, but sport has sport has some of the best stories out there and always has done. But you know, the, the stories are on a human level, on an emotional level, in terms of the universality of the themes. I mean, it's 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 always been the case. So I think um, if you if you're working in sport and you understand that area, uh, you've got a good basis from which to launch. I think, and um, the best stories in sport will appeal to anyone, I, I believe, because they're based around so many things that concern everyone. So I, I always I always feel like um I don't I don't, I don't think there should be a pressure on you to just to, to go outside of sport as if it should, should be some sort of sense of uh, progress I think if, if you're doing strong things in that area and if that area still satisfies you the, the, there's another documentary series that we're also working on at the moment which is about you know something that's absolutely terrifying and frightening and concerns everybody out there <laughs> has its roots in sport but it's life-changing so there can be an investigative quality to sports documentary there can be a, a challenging quality to sports documentary there can be a, a revelatory quality to sports documentary an intimacy to sports documentary that, that um, matches any documentary out there and can you tell me about the changing global demand for sports content it does seem that you know sports documentaries in particular are incredibly popular i imagine it's for kind of similar reasons that you just outlined yeah i think i think i think that's it yeah i, I think it's it, it is 
is just to do with the breadth of platforms now, isn't it? Netflix, Amazon, um, Apple. And, and also, I think one of the things that they bring with them on just on a simple level is, is obviously the funding to make sports documentary, which enables you to buy sports rights. And sports rights are obviously very expensive a lot of the time. So if you're able to have a platform that not, that only believes in that good, strong storytelling, but it gives you the funding to investigate areas and show and maybe show the sport to in its full across a, an eight, 10 part series, as you, as you had with the last dance, then then that is going to that's going to lead to a great expansion. And it's all very, you know, very, very positive if you're an independent filmmaker, hopefully. So sort of digital platforms are actually yeah. enabling sports documentaries to, to be shot just because they, you know, simply have enough money to, to buy the rights. That's one thing. Yeah, I don't think it, that's just if, you, if you're making a program, that's one thing you want, isn't it? You want archive if, you, if you're telling an archive based story. So I think um, there's always that line in the budget for us, which John, I'm sure, could tell you more about than me. But there's always that line in the budget for you about uh, how much archive rights will cost. And an eight part series is going to involve a lot of archive. The Last Dance, for instance. So if you have a deal with the, the federation that is involved in that sport, or if you have a platform that enables you to, to buy more of that archive, then hopefully that will enhance the, the, the quality of the program. But also you've got to be inventive around that. It's not it's not simply about the cost of the archive. It's also about, I think, the, the breadth you to do. Um, you're not restricted by um, prime time on a, as you are on a TV channel. You're not restricted by hours in the same way, are you? And I think um, that's just a, a fundamental basic that um, is, has got to be good for filmmakers. And do you think the pandemic has changed audiences' viewing habits? I think inevitably it has, yeah. And inevitably. I mean, we've sort of talked quite a lot about the, the variety of the streamers that are out there. And I think lots of people are, are viewing across lots of different platforms at home. I mean, obviously, cinema's been impacted massively and, and is coming back now and hopefully will come back to where it was. I mean, a couple of comparisons for us with our last two feature documentary releases this time last year we released a partnership with the BBC and Virgin Island and Virgin Media in Ireland which was fantastic and we had a window we tried to carve out these windows to go direct to consumers and we had it all set to go to a big cinema release I think about two days before the cinemas closed down so it was a timing was not great a year ago and then this last week now we're just releasing Arsene Wenger Invincible which is an Amazon original in the UK we've co-produced that with Federation Entertainment in France and Crown Plus and then um, we were able to go to cinemas there so we had a premiere last night and hopefully we'll, that will do well and we'll be able to launch in, uh, uh, theatrically and get direct to consumers in, uh, ahead of Christmas again. So uh, has it changed? I don't know yet. We'll, we'll find out. We did well with Jack a year ago in the pandemic. Going direct to consumers, we did well in that window um, before it then played on, on TV. We're doing the same with Wenger now and hopefully it will do well again. And I think viewers, viewing habits have changed. You know, people do want to watch on platforms. There is a big breadth of platforms now, which obviously as producers, you need to ensure you get your films onto. But um, I still think there's an opportunity for us to go direct to market mm. and direct to consumers with the films that we're making because of the subject matter. And um, how do you mean you're going direct to consumer? Are you do you have your own sort of platform? We're releasing it on um, transactional, so transactional. So we we partner with with other companies that will take it to cinema. We'll uh, get it on iTunes. We'll get it uh, download to own, download to rent, and DVD and Blu-ray still. So um, that that's the first window that we're looking to um, where, where we can and where we think it's right we're looking to carve that out because you know the subjects that we're working in they've got a fan base there is a, a, a very engaged fan base there that, that if you can release correctly and in a way that is using everything that's at your disposal when you make a documentary which is another f- fantastic thing about documentary filmmaking you know you go out and you shoot for Gabriel was, Gabriel especially will sit with a, a, a major interview interviewee for an hour and get all this amazing content and we'll use what five minutes of that in the film and then you've got 55 minutes there that actually 
actually, you know, you own. And that there's an audience that's interested in that. And you can package that and bring them along with you. And then here's our film. So trying to think differently. So, so it's a very long-winded way of not answering your question. <laughs> but what um, has have viewing habits changed? I don't know. Yes, of course, there's more streamers and people have them and they expect that. And they maybe then don't want to pay earlier like they used to. And that's the challenge. We, the, I think as production distribution company we want to be, we face. We've got to make sure that we still get to the audience at the right point that works for the audience and that works for us as a filmmaker. And that's what we're trying to do with, with our releases. And you've mentioned obviously streamers and then it transactional. Do you think broadcasters are now obsolete and everything's shifting to digital? N- not at all. No, no, I really don't. I really don't. And I, I, I pains to, to make sure to say that that's not what we're, what we're saying in any way. You know, we've been really fortunate to have some great relationships with broadcasters across the last few years, and we're making documentaries for for television, uh, for BBC, for Channel Four, for ITV, for BT Sport, uh, and others. We've absolutely not. I think um, BBC and Virgin Island. I mentioned. Um, were our partners on Jack Charlton and they were fantastic. Great support, gave us a real good start in our sort of journey out with the film. No, I think they're they're adapting as well. You know, you see with iPlayer and, and such like, they're adapting to the new world and are very relevant still. And then um, I think you mentioned it, Gabriel, your Steve McQueen documentary. Um, when I was researching, I saw on your website, it said that the doc had been lost in the system as it was released via the traditional distribution model. Can you tell me about what happened? Yeah, I mean, John's probably better qualified to, to go into the nuance of that. That was more of the business side of it. But but I think basically, yeah, it was just that um, we were new to it and um, we were very ambitious for the film. And as I say, it was selected can. And um, I, don't, I don't think we, we were too naive to believe that this, you know, this, this, this was a film that was going to win an Oscar. But, but it was a film that um, uh, I think was was at that point, um, it, it was lost in the system. And so I think the, the lessons that we learned from that were, were, were fundamental to, to, to forming Noah in the first place so that you take control of, of, of a film's destiny as much as you can and, and you try and ensure that uh, those that are working with you on the film believe in it as much as you do. And it, 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 you know, I think it, it, the film industry has been for a long time quite a, quite a cynical industry at times and I, and I think um, if you have those sort of bigger visions and uh, high ideals for your work, you want those to be represented uh, in the right way. So that, that, that's sort of my interpretation of what happened. I mean, John, just in terms of the, the distribution model we then decided, along with Barry Smith, to to build. You you, you can say yeah. more. Can't you? Well, a, a little, yeah. I mean, I think as Gabriel said, it was it was our first film after making a lot of TV documentaries, and and I suppose it was about alignment. Really, we went into it believing all parties' interests were aligned, and I don't necessarily think that's often the case in the traditional model. I think I think producers, as we did at the time, gave up a lot to make the film. With the reward that you're hoping for at the end of that is that there's a back end and profit. And I think in in the set, traditional setup, there's often lots of people in that that aren't sharing that back-end profit and so aren't necessarily working towards that and so I think that's the fundamental misalignment and maybe some transparency around that as well I mean you know it's but it's not I don't see it as a negative I think I see it as a positive and it is on our website as you say you know it, it didn't go as we wanted the film didn't release how we anticipated and hoped for but it did lead us here and, and as Gabriel said we just thought let's let's get hold of it and let's let's try and drive this ourselves and look after ourselves as producers filmmakers and also like the financiers that we brought into this that had helped us realize it people who'd, who'd lived and breathed the film for several years that's essentially what we're trying to do and hopefully to, as we grow and, and scale to do for third-party filmmakers as well is offering transparency alignment so everyone's working to the 
same goal, which is if the if the film is successful, everybody shares in that, and that's 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 what we that's what we set out to do. As, as Gabriel says, with Barry Smith, who's our chairman at the start of the business, it came in and joined with Gabriel and Talk and I. It was let's let's do this with our films initially. Let's take hold of it and let's see what we can do, and let's let's see if this back end is is achievable, and it is. And then yeah, the intention is to scale that and, and try and and work with other filmmakers to to help them realize that as well. So did it lead to you launching the sales arm? Not initially. So, um, uh, you know, we, at the very start, there was four of us and then we released uh, Bobby Robson, uh, more than a manager with independent sales, which we did, which did really well, actually. It was, it, was very, it was a very different experience. But then, yes, we wanted to take control. <laughs> I mean, that, that's that's fundamentally the, um, the scenario. So, and part of doing that was to have our own sales arm. So we brought in specialists and feel like we've now got a real sort of, over the last three years, potentially, that Katrine's been with us. We have contacts in every, most territories. People who are, want documentary, high-end documentary, are interested in sport and sport documentary and yeah so it allows us to go and have options across the world with all of our films and and work the films for the duration of the tale you know it's 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 not just a one quick sale up front the same sale for every film every film we've done had a different route out we've partnered with amazing companies now at different stages and it works works for us and equally importantly it works for them as well it's like you know it can be a relationship that is like that i think if you can have those direct conversations and so that yes that's why we brought in the sales to be able to have those conversations and what type of third party content do you acquire for your sales arm it's quite early stages on that to be honest with you and we have represented third party independent films to date you mentioned uh, the US health documentary which is a, a bit of an outlier really uh, in terms of the films we're representing sport mainly producers who are interested in sport have come to us to date and, and asked us if we if we would represent their films in our sales arm I think going forwards we do want to represent uh, films we do want to be part of films and set up in a way that is more aligned not just the sales agent but really helping to to try and uh, and maximize and get to that back end so we're looking for the highest quality subjects with scale of audience i suppose is interesting for us like we're working sport i mentioned music a little bit earlier scale of audience is good but with a real human story beyond that that allows it to break from that core audience i think that's really important and certainly gabriel's a filmmaker is always looking for that in the films he he tells Um, and back on the producing side can you talk me through your current developments late so yes what what can we talk about we've uh, just announced Villeneuve Peroni with Sky Studios Gabe do you want to sort of give an overview of Villeneuve Peroni yeah Villeneuve Peroni is a fantastic story based in the world of motor racing in the 1980s late 70s early 80s Gilles Villeneuve a Canadian Formula 1 driver Didier Peroni a French Formula 1 driver they were teammates at Ferrari and um, their relationship was incredible as friends they were both charismatic uh, dashing charming from very different backgrounds and uh, their lives turned on a race in the early 1980s and the film is uh, I sort of touched upon earlier I think has themes in it that are just incredible the twists and turns of, of what happened that day and then what followed and the lives that uh, both families lead today with both heroes having died chasing the dream and the feeling of speed so the the story is um, fascinating and it's never been told and it'll make a wonderful film which talk was directing and, and I'm writing. We're currently um, filming at the moment, getting our interviews done with 
the Peroni family. And there's been some filming already done in Canada with the Vilner family. So uh, yeah, that film will be released next year, John Wiener. Back end of next year. And then, and then this month, as, as mentioned, we've, we're releasing Arsene Wenger Invincible. Uh, it's going to be in Canal Plus in France, transactional UK around Christmas, as we've discussed, and, and then Amazon Prime Video next year. And international sales we're doing ourselves with Federation Entertainment, our partners on that. Uh, and then we've got our first Netflix original coming at the end of the month, which we're very excited about, um, called 14 Peaks, Nothing is Impossible, which is a mount- the mountaineering film I mentioned earlier, which again, Talk has directed, and it's premiering in New York, uh, New York Doc Fest, and then in the UK in the coming weeks. We've got a three-part series for BT Sport called South of the River, which Gabriel's co-directed with Jay Gill, which is coming out this month as well. So it's, there's um, South of the River, 14 Peaks, and Wenger landing this month. Uh, we've got a two-part series that Gabriel mentioned, an extraordinary series in production, which is underway, which we can't talk about openly at this stage. We've got one, two other feature documentaries in production, and we've got two other TV documentaries in production, for which we will, will then retain international sales and look to sell them as well. So, And as well as all that, we've got our, um, our Federation work, so we do a lot of work for some of the biggest sporting bodies around the planet and, and, and make documentaries and title sequences and everything, uh, promos and stuff like that for them. So there's a lot going on. It's really good. You mentioned that you're co-producing with Federation in France. What is your co-production strategy? So we partnered with them quite early. They came to us. They came to us with Christian Jean-Pierre, who's co-directed the film with Gabriel. And they came to us and asked if we would make the Arsene Wenger film with them. And so they brought the French partner. We brought the UK partner. Uh, and then with other things, set the budget and um, have made the film now. It's just been released. It's fantastic. And then uh, with our sales arm and their sales arm, we are now doing international sales. And, and that's started now and, is, and, and sales are happening. And are you looking for any more sort of co-production partners or are there any territories you're particularly interested in working with? We would look for other co-production partners. We definitely wouldn't rule it out. We we are open to working with people in this way. It's been good. And, uh, and we're really, really proud of the film we've made with Federation. Other territories, I mean, it, I suppose it depends on the story, to be honest with you. I mean, we, America obviously is interesting. The States is always interesting and subjects there obviously do travel. And so we are at this point in time with one of our films, we've got a big US subject that we've not announced yet, which is in production. And we're, we're currently starting conversations for, to work with producers in the States uh, to bring them as part of the, of the film's package and help us help us tell that story in the right way. The BBC recently commissioned Zinc Media Group-owned Scottish production company Turn TV for a documentary marking the 25th anniversary of Dolly the Sheep becoming the first mammal clone. Turn has had many years of success in the UK working with the nation's broadcasters, but the firm is now exploring relationships with global streamers as the market for factual content rapidly expands. Managing Director Harry Bell spoke to Ollie Hammett about these topics, as well as the proposed privatisation of public broadcaster Channel 4 and what this would mean for the industry. The main thing that I think about with these sorts of films, and it it, it goes across specialist factual, but let's stick to science, is what I would call Trojan horse films or Trojan horse programming. And that's how we look at it. So there's two mantras that I have when we're developing these sorts of films. One is clever pleasures. And the second is Trojan horse. And by Trojan horse, and that fits into your sort of popular science sort of angle, I mean, dressing up programs with colour, with fun, with 
a rapper that's entertaining and then unpacking them with quite spiky, difficult, chewy um, current affairs or issue-led stuff or polemic or scientific facts or whatever. And that, I think, to me, that's the ultimate factual programme because I do not want to make ghetto films which nobody watches about water shortages somewhere in the world. I want to make films that put bums on seats, entertain people, but also make them think. Dolly's a good example. Sheep are funny. You know, sheep are funny. Or certainly in the UK, we all find sheep are funny. You know, they're the butt of many jokes. So immediately you've got a gift there. But then if you unravel that, you go, well, actually, genetics and cloning and the ethics around scientists playing God are some of the biggest sort of topical issues that we have to deal with now and that we had to deal with back then. So it's the sort of perfect, the perfect kind of idea in a way. BBC Studios have picked it up. They fought off sort of rivals for it and and they've been tremendous actually. They've invested quite a lot in it to clear the archive and to help us make it a better film. And as a result of lockdown probably, we found we're having many, many more meetings with the big streamers than we ever had. You know, from Netflix to Amazon to Disney to Discovery Plus. And, and, you know, we're able to do that because we can talk, we're talking in a room now and everybody's kind of got used to that. I also think it's, we, although we're a smallish company and a smallish country in Scotland, we've been lucky enough to win some pretty big awards, you know, some batters. I think our bywords are kind of integrity and trust in terms of our storytelling. And I think, therefore, that the global streamers are, they're quite agnostic to where you come from. They just want great stories told by great producers that they can trust. I genuinely think that. Now, finding those great stories is, you know, is difficult and lots of people are doing that all the time. But I'm genuinely excited that we've reached a stage where we don't just have to pitch in the UK to the to the usual suspects, which are Channel 4 and the BBC. And doors are open. And I would also say the American market has always been brilliant at this. I mean, I, I love the fact that at, at places like Real Screen, you can walk into a meeting and it doesn't matter how small you are, the person, the commissioner that you walk into always thinks a hit could be coming in the door. I'm going to listen to this guy. The UK is still not like that. It's still quite hierarchical. It's still quite sort of structured. You know, not everybody gets a chance. And I think that's all been smashed wide open. And look, in terms of, you know, gender and race and um and geography and demographics, that could not be better. I think streamers have in many ways democratized who we are and what we are. And, and anybody with a really good idea can, I think, can team up with a good producer and get something away. I, I genuinely think that. So we definitely see a market for what I would call the sort of premium high-end feature doc. And I think that can only, you know, everything from, you know, we do quite a lot of crime. We do quite a lot of what I would call trauma shows. We do quite a lot of health and well-being shows. We do a few sports shows. And all those genres play globally. So I think we're kind of at a stage where we can, from our platform in the UK, we can just lift it up a notch. Economics is always going to play a big part, isn't it? So, uh, you know, the streamers have started off, as, as, as we know, in scripted, spending a million, two million, three million, four million an hour, or, or much more if you look at The Crown and, and other things. Whereas for factual, 500,000 US dollars an hour is a good price. So for them, you know, that there has to be a sort of return on investment. And I guess documentaries will skew 
on the whole to a slightly higher audience index or demographic or ABC one or whatever you want to call it. You said you make a lot of crime content. How do you see the genre kind of developing out of this this boom that it's clearly going through right now? Well, I, I mean, crime is quite interesting because obviously crime pays. Um, it is a it is a big past. I mean, Scotland, it's our sort of national hobby. You know, we, we, we're absolutely obsessed with it. So it works here for our audience. But globally, I think everybody's obsessed with crime. I think to answer your question, it's about finding new devices and mechanisms through which to tell crime stories. Because there are only so many serial killers that you can talk about or tell stories, but you can probably tell a hundred different stories about Bundy or whoever it is. But it's just finding those ways in. And I think that's where the clever way forward is. I mean, we've, we've been quite successful mining archive. And I think archive is a, you know, archive is a good source for that. I think there will probably be at some point a time when talent within crime docs pushes itself forward. That hasn't really happened yet because people understand true crime to be actuality driven and to be true, it has to sort of somehow feel authentic, i.e. you're watching something unfold as it happens. Of course, none of that is true because we manipulate the hell out of everything in an edit, as you know. So I I think there's a way forward, especially if you're looking to popularise crime, to get some talent um, into crime shows. And that could be really good criminologists. Um, It could be really good forensic scientists. Or it could be actors and actresses who who have a real kind of interest in that. Now, the purists will rail against that, perhaps. But will the audiences? I don't know. I suppose I'm thinking um, of those sort of those classic, you know, crime, terrestrial crime series from a while ago of like, you know, Ross Kemp becoming part of a gang or or people, um, you know, living with prisoners on death row or or whatever. And I don't think we've seen an awful lot of that within the sort of advent of streamers doing true crime. That's certainly something we're looking at at the moment because you have to find new ways, um, new ways in. You mentioned Channel 4 briefly. I presume it's been a big supporter of of your work and also that of many other uh, non-English production companies. How do you feel that the plans to privatise it would affect your business? I would say that Channel 4 has been absolutely pioneering, has been at the vanguard of supporting and sustaining small indigenous independent companies like ours and nurturing them and growing them and creating business models which you know help us to tell great stories employ people and of course help Channel 4 to to grow and win awards and grow kind of audiences and everything else and I I would hope that any new owner or any new iteration of Channel 4 realise that it is about a multitude of small voices a multitude of authors about diversity plurality all that sort of thing is absolutely fundamental fundamental to to great storytelling and to what Channel 4's ethos is and to a large extent what the British independence of sector is all about and and, and, and I, I think meddle with that at your peril so if for instance Channel 4 became a big conglomerate and was only interested in the bottom line then I think our culture would be poorer and we would be poorer as well because the smaller companies probably would be pushed out but I don't know if that's going to happen I would hope that 
big buyers and and the the people who play on the big stage they're not stupid they they kind of do realize where channel 4 has come from so you you would hope that that ethos would be maintained you know from our point of view you, you know the changes in nations and the gaze and the, and the commissioning that channel 4 have brought about in the last sort of two or three years have been fantastic but i also think that's because we as audiences want to see people and places represented from all across Britain and so it sort of plays into their world and it goes to your global point actually that I think global audiences increasingly want to see what's going on all over the world because we've become one we've almost become one you know one world one audience you know we're kind of much more joined up in terms of our viewing habits than we've ever been ever before an American viewer for example can watch The Crown which you mentioned and and say you know oh my god I love I love British content it's so different and it, you know it's so unique and all these things but obviously to a British person it's quite stuffy and uh, and very English and, and everything but yeah. your company's in a position where you've almost got two layers of, of local content uh, to come from you've got the UK thing but then also within the UK you've got something that also goes against that that norm uh, are you aware of that and do you like to take advantage of it? I think we are I mean look we're very proud to be you know Scotland's leading independent if you like or certainly in factual you know and we've grown it from you know a tiny tiny company into a sizable business and we've done it here in Scotland and in Northern Ireland and we haven't had to go elsewhere to do that so we're, we're very proud of doing that and I think we've done we've built that on the back of as you say making content for a local market in Scotland but we've also been very aware that we've we always have wanted to tell stories from Scotland but about the world and for the world and we've always done that and so I think we've we haven't looked the other way we've gone look we're from Scotland we know this country we want to make shows here and we will continue to do that and a sizable amount of what we make is from here but I would also say most of it also manages to play on the network so we make grand tours um, of Scotland which plays on BBC Two we make Inside the Zoo which plays on BBC Two we just made Sacred Islands with Ben Fogel which is a BBC Scotland which played on BBC One so we're, we're quite clever I think at creating local Scottish content that also hits the UK market but then I hope then also hits an international market so I think you cannot be blinkered but I think that to answer your question I think it all comes back to development and development is the engine room of any creative business and when we're looking at ideas we will normally reject ideas that will only work in one market you know from a very early stage that's not to say when you pitch them you can get them away in two or three markets but from that early gestation idea we'll always go right will this work for Scotland and Channel 4 or will this work for Scotland and Network and America or Australia or, or whatever so we're always always thinking like that that's not just a commercial imperative although of course that is important it's about making sure that not every single idea dies because you know 90% of, of life is rejection in, in a television company because you're you know all your ideas you believe in all of them and they get killed all the time so it's also sort of self-preservation that if you if you can develop an idea that you think has two or three avenues or openings then you know the pain of rejection is going to be less i'm i'm tough now i can deal with it but it still hurts a bit (laughs) that's all for this episode you can hear more discussions by tuning into the weekly review show on our c21 fm internet radio station where you'll find new interviews airing from monday
The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 